Hey, it's Kathy. I'm just hopping in real quick to tell you that the doors are closing to the Abundance Method program today. That's right. May 16th, four o'clock Pacific time, we close the doors to this program. And I'm so excited to watch you change your life. I'm so excited to see what happens when you tap into the energy that is within you and you start to attract so much into your life and there's incredible synchronicity and you start to perceive what was always here in plain sight and that which was hidden becomes revealed. If you want to join us, you can go to kathyheller.com slash join. And remember, those of you who sign up for the Platinum, you get the retreat included. It's going to be an incredible retreat. It's a three-day experience. You can choose between July or October and the July is definitely filling up. So come on in and join us. Again, the doors close at four o'clock Pacific today. You can sign up at kathyheller.com slash join. I cannot wait to spend 12 weeks with you and watch you become a master at manifesting the most gorgeous experiences and opportunities and abundance into your life. There's no reward without risk and you don't learn from yeses. You learn from no's. I mean, you learn from both, but what I've learned the most from is hardship. And it's what's made me better. It's what's allowed me to give people more value. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people that will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. 
Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. So glad that you're here. Sophia Amorosa is with us today. What a great conversation we had. I'm so looking forward to playing that for you. Before we dive in, I just want to let you know two fun things. Number one, my daughter Maddie is selling Girl Scout cookies and you don't have to buy Girl Scout cookies from Maddie. But if you did want to get your hands on some Girl Scout cookies, you can go to kathyheller.com slash cookies and you can click on that link. If you live anywhere in the United States of America, it can be shipped to you. You just click on the ship to me. If you click on the deliver to me, that won't work. But if you click on the ship to me, you can get cookies sent to you. I think it's good for the next few days. So go to kathyheller.com slash cookies if you would like to get some Girl Scout cookies and Maddie's troop is supporting cleaning the oceans. I'm sure you all have a Girl Scout in your life. So you probably already have your share of Thin Mints or whatever you love. But if you want them and you want them for Maddie, it's worth it to go to that link just to see the video that she did with my tiny little cat, Einstein. It's very cute. She made this little video, kathyheller.com slash cookies, if you are so interested. Also, another fun little thing, I am now on Cameo and uh, it's pretty cool. I've bought Cameos for other people in the past and uh, people have bought them for me. And if for whatever reason you ever wanted a Cameo from me, you can now get your hands on one. If you go to kathyheller.com slash Cameo, C-A-M-E-O, and you want me to wish you or someone you know a happy birthday, or you want me to share something with you or cheer somebody up or wish somebody a congratulations. If there's anything like that, that ever feels like something you'd want from me, you can go to kathyheller.com slash cameo and uh, I can do that for you. So let's dive into today's conversation because Sophia Amorosa is here and she is delightful. She's a serial entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, educator, investor, founder, and CEO of Business Class. A lot of you may know her from her previous companies, Nasty Gal and Girl Boss. Those are the things that put her into the entrepreneurial spotlight and made her one of the richest self-made women in the world. That led to her best-selling autobiography called Girl Boss, which you might want to read. Plus, she had a Netflix series called Girl Boss. A few years ago, she returned to bootstrapping and launched a new business that focuses on helping entrepreneurs, side hustlers, and founders to be build their dream businesses. Sophia is one of the people who I first wanted to have on this show. When we first started, I made a list on the back of an envelope of who are some of the people I'd love to have on. And she was definitely one of those first 10 names. I'm grateful that she was here, not only to talk about all the things that she's learned, but she was really open and very vulnerable. She talked about all the ups and downs. Sometimes success can be really glamorized and we don't really see behind the scenes. And it was really beautiful that she was willing to share with us the joy as well as the struggle. It's inspiring that she continues to create beautiful things and she's having a new chapter in her life and she's been pivoting her focus and finding more fulfillment and more satisfaction in all different kinds of ways. It goes to show that you can always reinvent yourself. I think you're going to love this. So without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Sophia Amorosa. Sophia, I'm so happy that you're on. I've known about you for so many years, even before I started a podcast, I knew who you were and Mm -hmm. I live in LA. So I've always like kind of watched you do your thing and found it so aspirational and calling other women up just by being you. I feel like you just set a new standard. So I'm so happy you're here and I can't wait to get into all the things. So thanks for making the time, first of all. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I love your show and it's like exciting to be on. And I haven't really been in the pod or outside of my orbit sphere for a while. So it's like, I'm a little rusty, but it's fun to to have a conversation and talk to your audience. Well, I can tell you right now from doing 700 interviews and having like all these amazing people on, I don't know how you personally could be rusty because there's something about you. And I just said it before we started. I feel there's such a realness to you that what I mean is 
I just feel there's like you're present, whatever you're doing, wherever you are in your life, you're honest and present. And to me, there's no performing. So then I, that's why I'm like, it's the best. It's just very Mm -hmm. refreshing. So let's get into it. So we're going to start where it starts, right? Like a lot of people know of you. Some people may have been listening to you for years already and read the book 15 times and given it to a bunch of friends, but some people might just know about you and they don't actually know the story and they didn't really read the book, right? So let's just give them a little context because it is so easy to look at people and say, she's such a badass and she must have just landed at the top of this tower and you actually began somewhere else. And then really found your way to everything. Like you had to have the courage to face yourself in so many ways. Give us a little bit of context about your life. Yeah. I'm an only child. I grew up with poodles. I now have three. I was born in San Diego, lived there till I was seven, mostly grew up in beautiful Sacramento, California, which I was chomping at the bit to get out of in high school. I was very angsty and I did not know what entrepreneurship was. I thought business was for like people, like squares. I've never thought about starting a business, <laughs> but I always had weird like stands on the corner, lemonade stands. I had a book called Odd Jobs for Kids that had literally like Xerox flyers you can print out before you could even have clip art and like That's make adorable. stuff on the internet. But it wasn't like, oh, I want to make money. I don't know. I was just like, came out like that. And moved out at 17 was really like anti-capitalism was like very much, you know, this is gross. Consumerism is gross. And it is, except I sold a lot of clothes. I don't know. Stumbled into all of this and it was vintage. I'm aware. Yes. Keep going. And I'll get into that. And so worked a bunch of really crappy odd jobs, like record stores, shoe stores. I wasn't a good employee. And when I was, and this is like, you know, I started my first company at 22. So I was pretty young, but I thought like the margin between the amount of money you were making and the littlest amount of effort was like success, like sitting in the lobby at an art school, checking student IDs was like my last job. And then I was like, I started getting all these friend requests. I, you know, sitting in a lobby And just like have idle time and getting all these friend requests on MySpace from eBay sellers that were selling vintage clothing. And I like loved vintage. It was all I wore. It was like all I could afford. I'm in San Francisco at this point and clicked through and looked at their listings. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this thing selling for $250, like it's cool. But like, I wasn't like a fashion girl where I would never, you know, outbid somebody on a thing. Like I love the hunt. And so I was like, okay, I know where to find this stuff. Like I thought hate street was expensive and this was so expensive. The dollar was really low. So like a girl in Australia and a girl in Copenhagen would be like duking it out. And $250 was so much less in 2007. So I decided to start selling some vintage online. Not all of it worked. And I wasn't a CEO. I wasn't a startup founder. I wasn't a founder. I was an eBay seller. I was selling some stuff on eBay. I had to give it a name, right? You have to make an account. So I called it Nasty Gal Vintage and took all the photos, wrote all the descriptions as any eBay seller does, not that special, small bootstrap business. And it became a business because I was so curious and just started putting one foot in front of the other. And eBay had given me this incredible framework to be like, okay, I need this in and I put a price in and I weigh it and I ship it. Had I had to figure that all out by myself, I don't think I would have started selling online 
And now, right, like 15 or how many years later after I started Nasty Gal, there's Shopify and Squarespace and Square and all of these amazing platforms for people to start businesses with. Etsy didn't exist. And so did eBay for about a year and a half. The first year sold $75,000 worth of vintage. Second year, 250K. And around then is when I, halfway through that year, I left and launched my website, left eBay, nastygalvintage.com. Year after that was 1.1 million. And at this point, I'm not just selling vintage. I'm going to trade shows and I'm curating brands based on what my audience gave me indications that they like love. So I knew I was able to kind of test my audience with one-off pieces and then understand her and what it was that she wanted to wear. So it was 1.1 and six and a half million. And by 2011, we were doing 12 million in revenue with no debt, no investors, you know, no loans, no friends and family, like startup money. I literally just like flipped clothes and then investors came in and they put 50 million, $60 million into the business. And that's kind of where the story that everyone else is, you know, that's when I kind of got thrust into the spotlight as this poster child of entrepreneurship. I mean, this is a long story. Should I continue? It's so good. Keep going. Okay. It's like exhausting to say out loud. And I'm like, what all that happened? Like, I'm tired. I'm tired after talking about this and I'm triggered. No. So they injected $60 million into the business. We said, okay, these were all like people with more experience. I'd hired like chief operating officer and had like really experienced investors, some of the best in Silicon Valley. And we were like, great. So we're growing really fast. We're going to do 28 million this next year. By the time they invested, that was the expectation. And then the year after that, we're just going to do a hundred million. And so we took that $60 million in venture capital and hired a hundred people in a year and moved into more warehouse space anticipate because I had outgrown every office and warehouse I had been in. They were like so fast up until that point. So we were like, okay, let's, we have to sign a longer lease now. Let's get a big space and a big warehouse in Kentucky and hire a guy from Zappos to run fulfillment and all this stuff. And we eventually hit a hundred million in revenue, but it took a couple years and it cost us a lot of money to get there. And that's a huge accomplishment, but I didn't understand that a company could lose money and still operate. You know, at that point, I had not really understood finance. I didn't know how to read a profit and loss statement or a balance sheet. I didn't really understand cash flow because there was always cash because the company needed cash because that's what companies need to operate. And by the time things got really complex, I didn't even have like a foundational knowledge because I was running on intuition and wit and common sense. And a financial statement was so complex by the time we got that big, that understanding how to manage the business like that became really challenging. During that time, when we were doing around a hundred million in revenue, I wrote a book called Girl Boss. I did not anticipate it to become what it did. It spent 18 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It sold half a million copies. It's so much. It's a lot. Netflix made a series out of it called Girl Boss. And there's someone playing a girl named Sophia. <laughs> starting a company called Nasty Gal. Charlize Theron produced it. That was a trip. And in 2016, I left Nasty Gal. It fell apart. 
for a lot of reasons. There's no single kind of like what happened. It doesn't happen overnight that a company falls apart. We were overvalued. So they had said in 2012, when we were doing on our way to 28 million in revenue that we were Mm. worth $350 million. Mm. So for anyone else to come in and invest after that, the expectation from our investors was that those people were going to pay more money and not 400 million, but a billion, right? They want to multiply their money. They don't want like incremental markups. Yep. So that was one of the challenges, but I was a really young, naive founder who had never, literally never worked in an office before, had no model for what leadership looked like, was trying to learn on the fly as I was building this rocket ship. And I can learn really quickly, but the learning curve for this was like steeper than my ability to learn and adapt. Totally. And that happens in our lives. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We learn a lot. Even if we're not learning it fast enough, eventually we learn. Yeah. Well, let's take a pause because you just literally said so much. And as you were speaking, and then you literally said it out loud, like I'm exhausted. I was like, wow, like this Mm. is fascinating. And I don't know what else you're going to do in terms of ever writing books or anything, but to me, it's so juicy the sequel because, I know. <laughs> because so often, right. I talk to at this point, thousands and thousands of people. And what's fascinating is how there is this feeling of more is always better. Grow the business more, yeah. keep growing the business. And we've had so many founders on this show who have said something so similar to what you're saying to where There needs to be a new understanding of like, where's the actual sweet spot where you're making cash and having fun and being the person you actually feel authentically most suited to be versus make more money. Because when you started telling that story, there was no pressure. It was just an experiment. You were just having fun. You were unattached. You were taking your own photos. And that first 75,000, I think you said you made, is just the best, right? It's like, oh my gosh, like I played with something, then it turned to 250, right? And even when I got to this point where you're like, oh my God, like it's making a million dollars, right? It's like- like, I can buy a Nissan. Yeah, it's like, it's amazing. And then all of a sudden at some point, the world has ideas about you. You know, you are all these things because you're very much like firecracker. You're smart, you're a risk taker, and you're also really beautiful. So the world comes along and says- You could be the horse we bet on and we're going to give you this amazing thing called we believe in this possibility. And now you kind of put yourself into like the temple of doom because it's like, wait, do I want this? I was actually vibing. I was actually feeling good. So what would you say looking back are some of the things you would say to an entrepreneur? Because we're going to get to it in a second. You, You do teach people to become great founders. You believe in it. However, there's a place at which the train derails and no, no one's even happy. So what are some of those lessons that you think you've learned to where you now would say, this is a litmus test for how you know when to just sustain what you're doing and enjoy it versus push to earn more? Mm-hmm. I think it starts with your goals, right? And I didn't have goals. You know, it, I came out just accidentally and as American dreamy rags to right. riches, the story was, which inspired a lot of people, community college dropout, no connections builds this thing. Wow. Totally. What a great, let's talk about it. 
It's very cute, but it's also not the best. It's inspiring in that anybody can start a business really, truly, but having experience either in a career, in a workplace, in the domain, working for someone in the domain that you're starting a business in, really anything, any preparation before you start a business that anybody does, they're already leagues ahead of where I was when I started. And when you don't have intention, scaling, no intention, scaling, serendipity only goes so far. Like it's fun in the beginning. But when you have an organization of hundreds of people and you have tens of millions of dollars and responsibility to your vendors and customers, and there are so many stakeholders, it requires a plan and you have to start with one for that to scale into something beautiful. You have to start with intention, whether it's how you run the company culture, what the budget's going to look like, how fast you're going to grow each year, you know, companies actually control their growth. I didn't do that in the beginning and it was an amazing rocket ship, but had it grown more slowly, I would have had time to learn some of the fundamentals that would have really helped me once it was a massive business. And and then it also is like a question of like, what kind of lifestyle do you want to have? I didn't understand lifestyle. Like when I was 22, 25, I was just like, oh my God, I'm just doing this. I can subsist on Boston Market and Starbucks. (laughs) This is great. I'm just going to stay up at all hours, ship my packages at 11, be at an estate sale at 7 a.m., lined up with all these like 60-year-old antique dealers running straight for the closet. And I'm 38 now and I'm like, oh, lifestyle, you know, like I don't want to grind in the same way. I do. But I also want to be able to go to yoga in the morning and be like kind of a well-rounded person that I never was really taught to be and wasn't for so long. So some people are willing to put in that grind and you can build a business profitably and sustain an amazing lifestyle for yourself, owning a hundred percent of your business, not taking investor money. It can be an amazing lifestyle, right? For you and your family. And you put that money in the bank. You can also build something with enterprise value. You can do them both at the same time, but some people optimize for enterprise value over revenue. And enterprise value is how much somebody values your company at, which is usually more than the revenue that you're making. But you can build something to ultimately sell and not pocket the money every month or year in the same way that I know you do. And I'm now doing because I like bootstrapping businesses and I'm good at it. But there is an opportunity for people if they're willing to put in the grind, not pay themselves very much right now, and possibly take investor money to build something that they plan on being worth so much that eventually they're going to sell their stock in that and then they'll make money. Yeah, it's really an interesting thing because you made this so famous, this whole world of girl boss, right? And it it had such powerful ripple effects, right? I was just doing the research today and it was saying something like 8.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are, are women, right? Yeah. That's like ridiculous. I mean, we make up half the population. And so what I'm saying and what I'm hearing you say and what I want to ask you more about is, you know, we are girls who want to be bosses. However, the way we were raised is that 
when women went into the workforce in the 70s and 80s, finally, they thought they had to be like guys, right? Like in order to be successful, it's like, forget thinking about things like quality of life and yoga and lifestyle. It's like, do it like this and do it even better. Now you have something to prove. So you better do the same, but better, right? And I have three kids and I have built a business with a team of four people. We make a few million dollars a year and I intentionally built this business so that it would be my life that came first. Yeah. And I feel like the new and improved version of girls really being bosses is to say, I'm not doing it on their terms, right? Mm-hmm. Like a woman's cycle is 30 days, more or less, right? One egg every 30 men, it's 24 hours. They renewed every 24 hours. It's like, we're just different. Like we're literally different. We're all about like more of this sort of like qualitative, resonant, like potent and they're like, boom, 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 literally like hustle, hustle, hustle. It's just in the way you just told that story, what's reflected is that as you grew up, so did your intentions. So did your ability to say, wait a minute, I still want to be a business person, but I want to have a life. And at some point this stopped feeling fun. It felt exhausting. So mm-hmm. now when you're teaching women to build businesses, what possibility do you see? Where do you see there's a possibility for them to have a beautiful, thriving business and a quality of life. Mm-hmm. I think for women, what I see the most is not necessarily identifying like a gap in the market. Obviously, when you start a business, you want to create something unique. You want to see the landscape. Wow. Okay. Maybe there are other brow artists out there because a brow artist is an entrepreneur now, but how can I do this differently in my local region or how can I market myself differently? And they're not necessarily looking at like, wow, the mattress space is so outdated. I'm not passionate about mattresses, but I'm going to raise a bunch of money and start a mattress business, right? I think women naturally are drawn to start businesses that feel in line with who they are and their interests. And that's what motivates us more so than, oh, look, there's a business opportunity, Correct. And I think that can also be dangerous because women aren't taught how to evaluate business opportunities in the same way that men are. So there really is kind of like a marriage of what is natural for us to shoot from the hip and pursue our passions and the things we're naturally talented at, but also understand how to put together a plan, understand finance, understand leadership, understand what the opportunity is for you and how to adapt your business over time instead of just be like my passion. I'm just putting my passion out there that doesn't always work. Your passion and people's desire to pay you for that don't always match up. Definitely too precious about it. I want to go back to what you said. And it was just like a comment you made, but it's so powerful. You said my customers, you actually said she, my customers, she was already indicating to me what she wanted. And when people are beginning, and I would say most of the people listening to the show are at a place where they're working their side hustle, hoping to be able to leave their job, or they're hoping to even start the side hustle, right? So sort of near the beginning. And when I look at your beginning, it was extremely successful, right? Very successful. And in looking back at zero to a million dollars in revenue, I want to see if we can unpack and understand some of the things that you now know are the reason that it worked. And one Mm -hmm. of the things sounds like it was like listening to your people, like 
not just blindly choosing things, but listening. Tell us more about that and what else you think were some of those reasons that you got from zero to the first million. Yeah, I think one is that I'm an introvert and I love being behind a computer. Like I don't like, I'm not like a gamer and I don't sit online all day, but my comfort level is building something from behind the scenes, which is ironic because I got cast in the spotlight. Now I'm like, Oh, I have social media following. I'll use it to like share my knowledge and wisdom with people. But my comfort zone is okay. I'm going to like, you know, I'm learning web flow right now. I'm like building websites in web flow. It's really hard. I tweak out. I love it. I love learning. And it means I'm in the weeds. And sometimes it means I could be a better leader and delegate better, but it's what I love. I'm wildly curious, you know? So I'm like, what? I reverse engineered things that other people were doing and I made them a little bit different. So I would go look at, you know, the sold listings of my competitors or other eBay vintage sellers and be like, oh, wow, like this thing sold for $450. And I would just go find that thing. I was really resourceful. So if I wanted to find like a Saint Laurent jacket or Yves Saint Laurent at the time, it's now Saint Laurent again. But in like the (laughs) 80s, there was a label that was just Saint Laurent. So I would go and I would look up misspellings of designer brand names and find that stuff on eBay. And it works and I could resell it. Now I think it corrects your spelling. It didn't. (laughs) You know, I loved being creative and I wanted to be a photographer. That was what I wanted to go to college for. I got accepted to the San Francisco Art Institute and the California College of Arts and Crafts. I would love to go to art school. It's $50,000 a year. No one's going to pay for that. But I got to take photos and cast models and style them. And I didn't know how much I would love that. But I got to be creative in in a distributed way with like copywriting and all these different touch points that having an online business gives you that doesn't make you necessarily an expert in any one thing when you're doing that, but possibly just really good at at a lot of things, which is what I, I feel like I am and what added to my success. One of the things you just said, which is something not most often heard on this show is people who are entrepreneurs categorizing themselves as introverts. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important because I think sometimes when people are more happy, not in front of the camera, they assume they cannot have a platform and they cannot build a business. And people get very anxious when they think about having to build a business and then show up somewhere on social media. And they feel like, that literally makes my nervous system go out of whack. So how will I build yeah. a business? So I just won't build a business. So for people who are listening, who don't prefer to share their life or to be on camera, telling people what they're eating in the morning and building a social media following and all that stuff. How do you think you have done that? And what do you think then actually matters in a platform if it isn't in fact showing yourself 24 seven and having to be constantly in this position that you don't want to be as an introvert, what actually then do you think is all that really actually matters in building a platform? Yeah. So I built an audience by way of there being press and the book, and I didn't emerge as an influencer or a content creator. I have an audience because of that. And so a lot of people are starting from zero and they're like, I need to get a following and I'm growing an audience and you need to make content. And it's so much more considered and strategic now what we put on social media. I now am kind of like 
coming in the back door to this and I have an amazing audience, but I can't just like post pictures of whatever random stuff. People really want value. They follow people to get value from them. Yeah. And as much as I don't love recording a reel, Mm -hmm. I love the response of people who find value in what it is that I might have to say or who find inspiration in what I'm doing. And so with any job, we do things that we don't want to do. And yeah, personally, this it's really, I would, if I didn't have to like comb my hair or like, you know, I literally will record content after this because I put on lipstick today Yeah, yeah because I haven't this week. You know Good what call. I mean? Like I'll just stack things that I need to do and recording some reels for Instagram, you know, would I rather be doing something else? Probably. But when I publish those things, the outcome is something that's so gratifying to me that it makes it all worth it. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're an introvert and you're hesitant to be posting on social media or putting yourself out there, reminding yourself of the value that it is that you have to offer people is something that if you keep that in mind, when you're doing this, it doesn't feel like a scam. It doesn't feel salesy. It might not be comfortable, but that's part of any job, right? I try to remind myself, like, this is also a job. And people say, like, only do what lights you up. If it doesn't light, I'm like, a lot of stuff doesn't light me up. It's a job. I have to market what I do. And also, if I can provide value for people, that makes me really happy. Yeah. What matters is that value. It could be audio on a podcast. It could be sharing quotes from your podcast in a way that doesn't require you to be on video. Video is important because the algorithm prefers it, but you know, can you create reels about your morning routine or whatever things, if you're a nutritionist, right? What it is that you eat in the morning or what you recommend for people or a new kind of adaptogenic drink that you created that can help people calm the nervous systems with certain whatever powders. You don't always have to be on video to do that. There are creative ways to share what it is that is your zone of genius or have to offer. Yeah. What I love about this is you said earlier, this word about intention and like when you're scaling without a sense of clear intention that can like lead to not your favorite things. And what you're just saying right now, which I really like, and I don't know that many people have shared this is that if the intention is not about getting the likes and the follows, but about sharing value, you actually, as an anyone introvert or extrovert might actually feel better about it. Right. And I do think we set ourselves up to feel a little icky when we're playing for the cheers, Mm -hmm. but if we're playing to give a couple people value, it really does change it. And I, I love that that's so for you. I also want to ask you one more question about the book. And then I want to talk about business class, which is your 10 week premium digital course. But before we go to business class, your book, as you've now like said a few times, really was like one of the biggest things that built your platform. I mean, to sell that many copies is like 1% of 1% of 1% of all books have ever sold that many. It's insane how many copies of that book you sold. One of the things about that book that is so powerful is how unabashedly honest you are in that book. And I just wanted to ask you about your reflection on why you think that book was successful, because in my opinion, it is no small thing. Like it's one thing if it's a good book and like people buy it, right? But for you to sell that amount of books 
There was something guttural. There was literally something visceral in the experience of reading it that people were telling their friends, you have to read this. What in your reflecting on it, do you think made the biggest difference for readers? Yeah. I mean, I think like anything that strikes a chord, it has to fill a gap that is waiting for something or someone, whether it's a product or a conversation or personality. And in 2014, when I wrote that, when I published that book, I wrote it in 2013, Lean In had just come in a, out mm-hmm. a year prior. So Sheryl Sandberg, mm-hmm. the COO at Facebook's you know, first book, that was about women and leading, but she had this amazing pedigree. And any woman who had written a book that lived in the business book section, it was like Susie Orman, who's a finance expert. There wasn't a lot of them to begin with. And there certainly weren't any community college dropouts with a choppy haircut <laughs> talking about starting a business because to a lot of us, business people looked like that, right? So it was a story no one had really heard. And I think it provided a mirror for a lot of women to be like, whoa, like I actually went to college. I'm so far ahead of her. I could do this. I have access to this. I have a digital camera. I can start an online business. And Girl Boss really kind of cracked open the business book section for a whole lot of other books by women. And it's been just amazing to see so many more women sharing their stories. Mine was just one. It was infused with humor. Yes, honesty, but humor. Like it was a fun and funny book. You know, my story is like really goofy and unlikely and it's very kind of, I think I talk about smearing poop on the wall in like on the first page, like in kindergarten, like in Montessori, you know, I might even share that I picked my nose. I'm not sure this could be my big announcement. Um, and honesty is like, it's funny how much people think honesty is a novelty or like unique. Yeah. How sad is that? What are we all doing? What kind of script is everybody walking around yeah. with? I'm like disappointed in humanity when I'm applauded for being honest. Also, I'm too lazy to be like premeditated. I'm like ADD and not good at preparing for anything. So when someone asks a question, I just, whatever's in my head is what comes out. So yeah. So I've lived in LA since 03 and uh, I have a few friends who are very successful screenwriters and I won't say who this person is, but she's very successful. And she said something to me that was so good. She was telling me how she reads some scripts and like they're horrible. And she knows right away when something is not going to work. And she told me something that I think you will relate to. She said, do you know what you have to do to make the audience hate a character? I'm like, I don't know. I've never thought of that. She said, make the character perfect. She said, Mm -hmm. if the character is perfect by the end of the first act, the audience hates that person. They have no Mm -hmm. sympathy. She said, however, if the person can laugh at themselves, if the person has no shame about themselves and they have flaws, Mm -hmm. the entire audience is rooting for them the entire time. And I think your book is a book where there is a girl in this story who's like, these are some things I've done that I'm not proud of. These are some things I've done that I'm really proud of. This is my life. I don't really take myself so super seriously. And yet I think there's value in who I am. End of story. That 
is so unique because people want to belong so bad that they will do everything to be impressive. And what I learned from this conversation with my friend who's a screenwriter, I'm like, you're so right. It's what makes people not like you. It's actually people le- talk about lean in. People yeah. lean into you because you say things like, yeah, one time when I was not feeling myself, I like stole something and everybody's like, I relate to you. Like, it's just giant. And I think that's why you've had such a giant career is because there's a likability in the honesty of not trying to be somebody that you're not. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think about like Cameron Diaz and Drew Barrymore and Jennifer Aniston, like rom-coms when you say that. And like these women who are like kind of bumbling, exactly. you know, Bridget Jones's diary or whatever. And it's like, people love those characters and I'm not like trying to be one, but I guess Maybe I'm comic relief in some way to the very serious women in business, which I admire and I've learned so much from, but I'm just like not faithful of it. But nobody is. That's the point. It's like we, we see through it. And so again, going back to that conversation about you don't need to be somebody who you are not, you don't have to live on other people's terms. It's like, it excites me that you have an online course and we'll get into it now. It excites me that you write books. It's exciting because you're a stand for the possibility that people can show up as they are and figure it out. And that can be enough. That can be more than enough. And actually, I think allowing yourself to not be perfect is what gives you the permission to try things. Because when you have to be perfect, sometimes you don't get anywhere because you're stuck in analysis. So let's talk about business class. When does it open up again? Because the last time I checked your website, it was on waitlist. Yeah, it opens up again in April. Okay, um, so not so there's far. a wait list at businessclass.co right now. So we launch it twice a year. We may start doing it on a rolling basis after April. And so okay. people can kind of join anytime. But right now the ride is closed for it's under construction. That's okay. They're gonna um, they'll get on the wait list. Tell us who it's for. Let's talk about where you yeah. need to be before you sign up. Like do you need to already have the idea. Do you need to have already made ten thousand dollars in revenues? Tell us yeah. who it's for. Yeah. One thing before I tell you that is what you just said before you asked me that question was that we can kind of show up as ourselves and that's really inspiring. And one of the first things that I have students do in business class is text their friends and family and say like, what am I really good at? We don't ask that. And not everybody offers that to us. And then also like looking at your texts and thinking about who your friends come to you for. What kind of advice do they come to you for? You know, that's one way to start kind of from zero and think about how you could really help people. Um, Business class is for everybody, men and women. It's mostly women who have a business that's already running. We have students who are doing a million. We have students who are doing 20 million in revenue. We have students who are starting from zero and business class works for all of them. You have to, at the very least, have an idea. So coming to business class, being like, I think it would be cool to start a business. I have zero ideas. It's going to be overwhelming. So you can have a couple ideas even because in the beginning of business class, we take you through validating that or kind of playing with both of them, talking to potential customers, looking at the competition and your strengths, where is best for me to play. And then for the existing business owners, that process allows them to audit their business and say, okay, like I've been doing this this way, but I never kind of went back and looked at what I was doing. And maybe I'm not talking to my customers in the same way that I should be. Maybe I haven't talked to my customers at all and going through that process in the beginning. It's largely bootstrap founders. So it's not necessarily people who are like 
have a, a deck and just waiting for people to give them money. It's a lot of solopreneurs, it's jewelry designers, it's service providers and, you know, financial planners or someone with like a mushroom growing kit. There's coaches. So it really, it runs the gamut. There are a lot of online business owners, yeah. whether it's e-commerce or people yeah. providing services online. Very cool. Let me ask you this question. So as a result of what we do, we meet tons and tons of people who want to even begin to think about this, which is really great that we met because we can probably send a lot of people your way. And what's fascinating to me, it's fascinating. It's not shocking, but I want to hear your thoughts on it because no matter what they'll figure out about what it takes, they'll spend the time on website copy. They'll spend the time on product development. They'll spend the time on researching, but the part that's scary as hell actually getting a sale, actually going into the market and selling this to a person, whether you're DMing the person, whether you're having an actual conversation with a boutique owner, like whatever it is that for you is the person who needs to become your buyer. This Mm -hmm. is where everybody's like, and it's just like, what do you think it takes for someone to allow themselves to push through that fear? Because at the end of the day, you can keep looking at your website copy and you can keep showing me your products and you're not going to get momentum unless you're willing to sell. And it's just like, mm-hmm. people are so averse to it. And yeah. then I say to them, like, no going in, no going in that if you have a business at some point, there's a client at some point, there's a transaction and you have yeah. to be willing to do that. So what do you think makes that work? And what do you think allows somebody to get over that fear? Because it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. I like to say that your first product is your worst product and that you should start ugly. If you spend a bunch of time, like time is money. If you're spending a ton of time perfecting this thing that you haven't even validated, that you don't even know people want, you're wasting a lot of time and money because as soon as you put that out into the world, you're going to learn more than anything you know about business because you're going to hear from people, whether they like it or not, and they may not like it. And that's okay. That comes with running a business. And then you get that feedback and you're able to tweak. And before you spend all the time on the perfect website and the perfect video or copy or the perfect, perfect like product, put a prototype in front of somebody, put a web design in front of somebody, you know, have them read your copy, bounce things off of people, do something in a really manual way before you build the technology. ClassPass, for example, literally it was like a hamster wheel. Like there was a person like booking the classes for people before they even built the booking platform. So they were able to validate that there was a desire to book classes at multiple studios now they're a massive business. They sold to MindBody. It's an incredible story, but you can start with just like literally picking up the phone. You don't have to build anything special. And we teach that in business class. It's called an MVP or minimum viable product. And getting that out into the world as quickly as possible is really important. Otherwise it's just navel gazing. Like I'll insult you. Like I just let me shame you into starting because what is it? Idle hands or the work that devil, whatever, but it's easy to think and to consider and be like, should I do this? You know? And at a certain point you have to commit, even if it's not perfect. And that's where you learn. And the earlier you fail, the better you'll get at it. I failed too late. I wish my business had done worse in the beginning. I get that. Because it would have prepared me for what happens later when the stakes are so much higher. 
Yeah, I totally get that. And it's so true. And it's good, actually, when you said like, I'm going to insult you to get you started, but it's important. You know why? Because ultimately people don't want to stay in their fear. No one really is happy in their fear. If they're scared, Mm -hmm. they want to get out of it. And if you're not going to pick up that phone or have that conversation with the person who's your buyer, there's no point. There's just no point. And in having those conversations, like what allows you to let go of feeling rejected, I guess, is the question. Because I think what people think is a business problem is a courage problem. I think people are so afraid of rejection Mm -hmm. that they don't build a business. I mean, I think it just comes with life, right? And there's no reward without risk. And you don't learn from yeses. You learn from no's. I mean, you learn from both, but what I've learned the most from is hardship and it's what's made me better. It's what's allowed me to give people more value, you know, back to social media content or creating an entrepreneurship program like business class. When we're winning, the water is beautiful and blue. And when the tide recedes, you see what all that murky mud looks like, you know, and the, maybe there's a seven up can and a fish bone and all the stuff that's happening under the hood that you don't realize is happening until somebody rejects you, your company falls apart, you know, whatever it is, like things plateau and you have to solve problems. Yeah. Yeah. It's well said. I mean, one of the things that you and I have, we have a few things in common, but one of the things my parents got divorced when I was like just starting high school, I think yours was a little bit later, but one of the things for me that I've said to people when they're like, how have you like started a few multi-million dollar businesses? Cause it, it requires the grittiness. And I'm like, I remember as a kid being pretty uncomfortable. Like there was a lot that was uncomfortable about growing up in my house. And before mm-hmm. they got divorced, they had a really abusive, scary marriage and all the things. But my point is that there was a value, right? Cause it was what it was. I don't wish it on anybody, but a lot of people have uncomfortable things happen. There was a value in that for me because I wasn't under the impression that life would not be uncomfortable. So Mm -hmm. the fact that things were uncomfortable, I literally was like, oh yeah, of course. Like I'm going to be uncomfortable. And the fact that I was on my own so much during high school, I think I gained so much from being scrappy and being on my own that I think you did too. Like I think as hard and you would never want to write that for any kid, but then going back, it's like, your greatest resource is your resourcefulness. And what you saw in yourself was like, wait, I'm resourceful. And also necessity is the mother of invention. You didn't have a choice to not be resourceful. Nobody was going to come along with a white knight suit and help you. So you did it yourself. And I feel like in some ways we take that away from people. We make people too comfortable and Mm -hmm. you can't really afford to be if you want to master. I hope you get laid off. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, no, but like, there's so no, but like, beauty and there's beauty in it. So many people, it pushes them off the ledge into starting a business that they've been considering. I've seen it over and over again. I don't hope you get laid off. I hope it's elective that you don't keep your day job, but there's a lot of people I just want to push out of the nest. And the yeah. sooner you experience adversity in your career as a business owner, the better off that you're going to be. And you're right. I had a very critical dad. And I was an only child and it was a really unhappy home. And I had to kind of develop that resilience within myself, not to say that things don't hurt and that I'm not sensitive and that I don't care what people think because I do a lot. 
but it also gave me this like critical, maybe not the best, but self kind of accountable or even self-aware voice of like evaluating myself and whether I'm doing a good job and always striving to be better because I had this like not so healthy, but useful inner critic that I was granted as a child. Yeah. It makes sense because ultimately you're willing to go through rejection because you know what rejection feels like. And I think for everybody who's listening, one thing that I want to say all over and over is like, you have within you the capacity that you don't realize you have. Everybody who's listening, every person who is listening has already been through so much of the hardest stuff you'll ever go through. And you got through it with grace. And if you remembered that and you trust yourself, then you can start a business too, right? I just want to ask you a question because in researching, it looks like there's other things that you have, like there's a self-promotion and press retraining, there's the perfect mm-hmm. bio, yeah. and then it says yeah. one-on-one coaching. What does that mean? How could you ever be available? You probably have people who they can help. Oh yeah. Are you looking at my, like when you're looking at my LinkedIn bio. So I put out free content all over the place, whether it's on my Instagram or my newsletter, which is at sophiamarusa.com slash newsletter. So we have like 120,000 subscribers and I send a weekly newsletter and we have a bunch of downloadable guides that are free. Um, And there's an app that I've used called intro and I am like uh, one of the experts on it and you can book me. I don't do it a ton. Cause it's a lot of context shipping to hop on a call with someone, get to know them and be able to like give them any kind of guidance. Totally. I was, yeah. Um, so I don't do a ton of it. Okay. Business class is really where I try to scale my knowledge. And, and you give so much in business class, by the way, I was so reading like, like how many live calls there's like over 60 live calls. We do them every week while the program's in session. It's amazing there's- that you do that by the way. Thanks. Yeah. And it's, it's very interactive. We have the lounge, which is an app, which is our community. And so the kind of one-on-one coaching I could give the community is able to give and like in a distributed way, and they know more about their industries than I do. And in many ways, the business class community is more relevant than me. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, we'll put a link to business class and we will put all that here. My last question for you is in looking back at your life and your business, What's one thing that you would do differently? I would have spent less on a wedding. <laughs> it's that's not a valuable question. You know, my husband left after like eight months. So, mm. I mean, the answer is nothing because here I am and this is my life. And like, what would it be otherwise? I think I would have given people more of a chance to perform in their jobs instead of throwing the towel in on them. Wow. That's Didn't interesting. Know. I didn't know how to coach them to get them to where they needed to be. And I was a young leader who could have done a better job, but I don't know how I could have done that differently with what I I wasn't necessarily equipped to. I had a responsibility to, but I wasn't equipped to. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Thank you for such an incredibly generous conversation. You're so lovable. You're so likable. Thanks. And you're so smart. So we'll send everybody the link to business class, but tell everyone where they can follow you on the daily. Yeah. Instagram. I'm Sophia Amoruso, Twitter, Sophia Amoruso, LinkedIn, same thing. And then business class is at business class on Instagram. You can join the wait list at businessclass.co. Amazing. It's really yeah. valuable stuff. Yeah, I'm so you. glad I finally got to connect with you. I've Me wanted too. to for so long. Me too. 
Wow, Sophia is so cool. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, if you're hesitant to put yourself out there, remember the value that you have to offer people. Number two, when you can laugh at yourself, when you have no shame around your flaws, then the entire audience roots for you. Number three, you don't need to be somebody who you're not. You don't have to live on other people's terms. We can show up as ourselves. Number four, your first product is your worst product. It's okay to start ugly. Number five, the earlier you fail, the better you'll get at it. You don't learn from the yeses only, you learn also from the noes. Number six, there's no reward without risk. Number seven, your greatest resource is your resourcefulness. And number eight, you have within you the capacity that you don't even realize. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being here. I know that you have so much going on in your life and I so appreciate that you make the time to listen to this show. And I'm hoping that it's giving you inspiration and ideas. We have so many good episodes that are coming up. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening. And please leave us a review. It helps so, so much. And if you know somebody who would appreciate this episode, please text them the link or you could email them the link. And if you would like a personalized message from me, I am now on Cameo. You can go to kathyheller.com slash Cameo. You can take a look and see if that's something that you would like from me. I'll leave you with a song and I'll talk to you soon. 